This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have NBC's War Telescope as it aired on November 13th, 1943. The series was broadcast from London and offered weekly updates on the war every Saturday, as well as looking at what could be coming in the weeks and months ahead. War correspondent Elmer Peterson hosts, and he discusses the outlook on the war in Great Britain, as well as the hope there that the war will be over by the spring. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you'll find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. From London, the National Broadcasting Company presents War Telescope a review of the war week and a forecast of possible developments to come. War Telescope features Elmer Peterson of NBC's London staff, a veteran reporter of the European scene. And so for his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London. This is Elmer Peterson in London. More and more here in Britain, you encounter the belief now that the war will be over by next spring. The belief also that it won't be over until next spring or later. The recent wave of hope that it might be over by the end of this year is receded somewhat. Although on that point, you can still find a fair amount of optimism. Certainly the feeling that anything can happen is still very strong. That feeling hasn't been lessened by the public speeches the past week by Stalin, Churchill, and Hitler. However, it does seem that hope is being mixed a little better with recognition of realities. The statement by Prime Minister Churchill that 1944 will see the climax of the war, and very costly sacrifices as well, has had its effect. Churchill did not put aside the possibility of happy events, which may shorten the war considerably. He did succeed, however, in tempering any foolish overconfidence about the future. Then, too, it's realized here that the remaining weeks of this year are slipping away fast now, although there's still time and reason for 1943 to produce some surprising developments. One really deep conviction here, after all, is that Russia hardly would have agreed to an allied military strategy which dates months ahead for its full realization. It's doubtful, too, that Russia accepted an arrangement of nothing but air attacks on Western Europe for some time to come. There's a hint of that in the firm denial here that a deadline has been set for these air attacks to prove decisive. An RAF commentator has emphasized very sharply that air raids on Germany, however powerful, are not an end in themselves. 
Now, the men responsible here for the great air blows on Germany may have their private hopes and feelings about this, provided they get a break in weather. But they may not get the weather conditions they want. And so it's obvious that any extravagant hopes for the results of air attacks alone have been toned down considerably. And so this past week has had its effect on British thoughts of that one great question, when will the war end in Europe? In fact, the war in Europe has reached the point now where each week illuminates that question more clearly. Each week sees the lines being etched more firmly. And this is the way in broad outline that the British have reacted to some recent events. To begin with, the reports of the decay in German civilian morale are still attracting great attention here. But these reports are being viewed, you might say, in better perspective, with more emphasis on reports that the morale of German soldiers on the Russian-Italian fronts is still good. In fact, it seems that the very fact of retreat has developed a better feeling between German soldiers and their officers. German civilians may be calling Hitler a criminal and thinking deeper into the apathy of despair. It may be that the German soldiers in occupied countries are by no means anxious to fight, but the German army as a whole is still fighting. Not only fighting, but carrying on effective and far-reaching demolitions, which is important. When the German army start retreating without demolitions, we may have a sign that the German army leaders are getting free of the Nazi party. Regarding the enemy's home front, there's no longer any question here but what Germany's internal economy is getting to a desperate state in such things as dislocation of industry, transport, housing for bombed-out civilians. This winter isn't going to be a kind one for millions of Germans. But just how difficult conditions in Germany are going to be during the next weeks is hard to say. It's pointed out here that the real effects of heavy air attacks can't be fully determined in most cases until 10 months after the bombs have been dropped. The shortages of certain materials caused by bombing, for example, may not catch up with frontline fighting until that time. So, all told, there are many questions still to be answered about Germany. And this encourages the conviction here that the end in Germany will have to come much as it came in Italy, with the German army leaders precipitating the finish of Nazi party control. And so you find more and more here that the average Briton has his thoughts fixed on next spring. He won't be surprised if, by some act of providence, as Churchill put it, the end comes sooner. But he is working hard to balance his hopes against his feeling that it doesn't pay to be too sure. There's something else to be considered if you try, here in Britain, to find some guide to the future. Namely, the tremendous preparations being made here for future attacks on Germany. For it's become completely and thoroughly obvious here of late that Allied military leaders are not planning on any sudden weakening of Germany, any sudden yielding. This is not in itself an infallible sign that Germany may not crack suddenly. The Allied leaders may hope for this. They may even expect it. But their plans are being made on the assumption that the road to Berlin will have to be fought over every mile of the way. And you can't live here in Britain without being impressed by this. The colossal amount of striking power now being poured into this island. You can't miss the sense of urgency as well. New airfields seem to appear as if by magic. There's the endless parade of ships to British ports bringing the equipment of modern war. But it's obvious, too, that these preparations deal with a still distant future as well as the immediate present. Down in southwest England, as example, a considerable number of people living in small villages now are being asked to leave their homes and farms so that a new training ground can be secured for American forces. It's not a happy situation for these villagers. After four years of war, and with their own private ideas that the war is drawing to a close, they are being asked to leave their homes and firesides, to transplant their crops, to move their herds of cattle, to find a new life. 
And it would be hard to convince these villagers that the end of the war is just around the corner. Into their daily life has come full evidence that the preparations for big battles to come are still in full swing. And this forced evacuation of British villagers is but one example, and a small one at that, of what's going on now here in Britain. And so the past week has only intensified the feeling here of suspense, of unknown quantities, you might say. Personally, I have much the same feeling as I did on a September day more than four years ago when I walked through a workers' residential quarter in Warsaw to see the damage done by the first air attack of this war on a European city. It was an ugly thing to see, the buildings smashed and torn apart, the limp bodies being lifted out of the ruins, the haphazard piles of furniture, the overpowering sense of man-made tragedy. It was a scene that's since been repeated by the tens of thousands. But the thing that impressed us that day, four years ago, was the preparation Germany had made for war. Those wrecked homes were so clearly only the beginning. And it was an important weapon for the Germans, this recognition everywhere in Europe, that Germany was ready for war. It was something that brought the Germans many a bloodless victory. But now the shoe is on the other foot. Germany is going to be defeated, not only by sheer force of arms, but by her own recognition that there is nothing she can do against the preparations made to defeat her. We're now approaching the time when the psychology of defeat will become fully operative in Germany. It may be that the full strength of allied preparations here may not be used, but the very fact of these preparations, even if the war were to end tomorrow, will have served its purpose. This is something that's being discussed more and more here in Britain. For the war against Germany has more than ever the element of proper timing and of application of force for other than direct military results. There was a time here as example when the suggestion of certain campaigns against Germany were promptly countered by a recital of the difficulties involved. An attack on Norway, was pointed out, involved distance and proper fighter plane protection and difficult supply lines. An attack across the English Channel at the wrong time of year meant rough seas, highly difficult disembarkation, and not least, seasickness. But there's a tendency now to accept these difficulties and to assume that they will be overcome. The other day, General Devers, American Commander-in-Chief of the European Theater of Operations, spoke of getting across the English Channel in spite of its tides and currents, and even, he said, if it does make us seasick. So this much is certain. If our landings in Western Europe are made under extremely difficult conditions, it will be for good reason. Not only to press home military defeat as such, but to spread the conviction of defeat among Germans. For one thing can no longer be overlooked, namely, that the Germans are notoriously sensitive to attack on their own soil. That's one reason why the air raids on Germany have so beaten down German morale. The Germans were told they couldn't be attacked from the air, but they have been attacked in that manner. Now, the fear of actual invasion by land is beginning to take hold in them, and that fear must be accelerated. At the moment, even a demonstration that new landings can be made would have a powerful effect in developing this new German fear. Nothing would better destroy the morale of German soldiers fighting on fronts outside Germany than to realize that new landings were threatening Germany proper. And so far, it would seem, we've been too much inclined to think of invasion of Western Europe in terms of one great smashing blow. That blow will come, but it may be preceded by a succession of diversionary moves that will act as irritants against German fear, all adding to the confusion of the military scene, all making new and heavy drains on German equipment. The ideal landing, quite aside from the question of whether it's feasible, would be in Schleswig-Holstein, south of Denmark, directly onto German soil. 
but a landing in North Norway, say, would also have important repercussions. The very fact of Allied soldiers inside the fortress of Europe, even though their purpose was to hold on rather than advance, would be significant beyond measure. It's something to be achieved as quickly as possible now. Whatever form the invasion of Western Europe does take, it's going to be closely coordinated with political developments and with Russian strategy. Now that winter is approaching, the Russians aren't likely to overlook their northern and Baltic fronts. If their pressure weakens the German position in North Europe, it will be a signal for British and American forces to move in direct support. It's obvious, moreover, that we are approaching a point in this war where more help, indirect at least, can be secured from the remaining neutral countries. The hopes and beliefs that Turkey would commit herself to an active role haven't been realized as yet. But it can be assumed that Mr. Eden's talks in Cairo with the Turks had as much to do with setting the time for Turkey's contribution as well as establishing the fact of that contribution. In North Europe, the contributions of Sweden may become far more actual. The Swedes are prepared to help feed Finland as a helpful move in getting the Finns out of the war. But because of short rations themselves, the Swedes could do that only at a time of clear assurance about the finish of the war. When Norway is invaded by Allied troops, the Swedes may not give up their neutrality, but they may well adopt a role of non-belligerency and send arms to the organized Norwegian units that will immediately take up an open fight against their German oppressors. There is also the matter of invading Europe in a manner to take advantage of Germany's increasing shortage of weapons. For in the end, it will be shortage of equipment, not men, that will pull the German armies down. Meanwhile, and in spite of the more dominant realities, the British people retain a great interest in the question of German civilian morale. Perhaps because the people here had such good reason to make their own test of the importance of civilian morale. What we have yet to see is how far the Nazis can control German morale in the face of the air attack still to come, in the face of the conviction of defeat that will permeate the German mind once Allied land armies get within striking distance of German soil. The German people may be roused to the actual defense of their own soil, but there comes a time when the will to resist doesn't mean much against sheer physical and emotional weariness. And to those of us who have known Germany, the contrast here in Britain is impressive. The people here are obviously tired. No one here makes any secret of being tired. But there are so many little things here to cheer you on the way to victory. Here you can discuss the possible developments of the war, military and political. You can be encouraged by a report from Russia and be dismayed by a report of the new crisis in the Lebanon. But you can always walk down the street and somewhere see workmen repairing a building. A small thing, perhaps, but somehow exciting. For what appeals to you here is a thought and act of reconstruction as against destruction. The fact that a new minister of reconstruction has been appointed here is a tremendously important thing. Every Britisher has felt important as reconstruction is, important as post-war planning is, there was something to Churchill's argument that one had to make the winning of the war the primary issue. But the feeling here now is that the vast and practical scheme of food, work, and homes for all is beginning to take definite form. For that alone, the British are willing to carry on for some time to come against further punishment and further sacrifice. And so the British move deeper into winter with untouched confidence. They look forward to the next few months, not only for better evidence that the war is approaching its close, but for evidence as well that the war is going to produce some positive results here at home. This is Elmer Peterson in London saying goodbye on this program until this time next week.
You have been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war as seen from London by Elmer Peterson, NBC's veteran observer in the British capital. And may we suggest that you stay tuned to uh, your favorite station for the GI Variety, which will be heard over most of these stations in about a half an hour at 2.30. The GI Variety originating in Ankara, Anchorage, Alaska. This is the National Broadcasting Company.